Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, how many times have you heard someone say, if you don't vote, you can't complain? To be fair, I used to say that all of the time when I was an active voter. I'm joined today by Patrick Carroll, who wrote an article titled, You Can't Complain If You Vote. The title of his article is something that I've been thinking about for quite some time after I transitioned into anarchism. Patrick shared this article on a post on our Facebook page, and I immediately reached out to him to gauge his interest in coming on and talking more about his article. So before we get into your article, why don't you uh, give us some background? Tell us a little bit about yourself so the audience knows who Patrick Carroll is. Absolutely. Uh, so I grew up in Toronto in Canada, and uh, that's where I currently am. I've moved around a little bit. Uh, I studied chemical engineering at the University of Waterloo. Uh, so I'm currently 25. I graduated a couple of years ago, and I did the co-op program there. So uh, I've worked a variety of different jobs. Uh, I was born and raised in the church, uh, and I've sort of had an interesting journey uh, hearing different theologians uh, and being influenced by a few teachers, uh, specifically Paul Washer, uh, James White, Ray Vanderlan, uh, and then more recently listening to a lot of Jordan Peterson uh, has really sort of helped shape my faith journey and uh, come to different conclusions and convictions. Um, recently, just this past year, I've been doing an adventure-based leadership development program. Uh, and so that's been a lot of fun and continuing to learn and grow in, in different Christian communities. Uh, a couple years ago was when I really started to have my transition in, in political philosophy. I was sort of a typical Canadian, socially liberal and economically left-wing. I liked the idea of gun laws and universal health care and all of that. Uh, but near the end of 2017, um, there were some pieces of legislation that started coming out that really disturbed me. Uh, one was the attestation for the Canada Summer Jobs, where uh, basically the government said, in order to qualify for this summer jobs funding, you need to attest that your organization uh, agrees with, quote unquote, reproductive rights and, and sort of affirms against abortion uh, or, or with abortion. And that was just something I, I felt was wrong that like, why are you tying up this funding with uh, this sort of attestation for reproductive rights? And then the other big thing that really jogged my mind was uh, these bubble zone laws. So essentially around uh, abortion clinics for 50 meters, uh, they have these bubble zones in Ontario where basically there's no free speech. You are not allowed to protest abortion. Uh, the, the law is very clear, oral, written, or graphic means. And I really found this disturbing. Like these were gross violations of free speech. And that really got me to start questioning my political philosophy. I'm like, how, do, how is it that we live in this system uh, where even basic rights such as freedom of speech can be taken away? And I started to uh, dive deeper, not into just the politics, but the, the political philosophy. And like, what are, what are the fundamental axioms and principles that are driving this system? And over the months, I, I came to realize that I had fundamental disagreements with those. And so I started looking into libertarianism, uh, talking with some friends, uh, reading articles, watching videos, uh, eventually learning about the non-aggression principle. Uh, and then I discovered Cal Mullinay uh, was uh, a significant game changer for me. I started watching some of his videos, Larkin Rose, and then uh, many others who inspired me and really introduced me to this whole philosophy of anarcho-capitalism. And uh, the rest is history. I've been uh, an anarchist ever since. So 
is this with with your experience there and and what you're dealing with in the political world in Canada? Is this what is this what prompted you to write this article, or was it something that you'd been thinking about for a while? And because that, like I said in the intro, this is something I've been thinking about for quite some time since after I became an anarchist, because I don't believe that we, I, I believe anybody that's not uh, engaging in the, the voting process has more of a right to complain than those that are engaging in the voting process. You know, because we did not ask for any of this. We just, as anarchists, want to be left alone to live our lives how we see fit as long as we're not harming anybody else. Mm-hmm. We didn't ask for any of this. So, and I tell people that now to this day, because I, I still hear it from them when they ask me who I voted for. I was like, I didn't vote. I'm not participating in that garbage. I can't, in my own conscience, I can't allow myself to do it anymore. And then they, they will come back with, well, you can't complain. And then I'll turn it around on them and say, you know what? Actually, you can't complain because you asked for this. We didn't ask for it. Yeah, I mean, uh, so... I've always sort of wrestled with voting. I've never liked any of the main political parties and political candidates. And uh, I've also always wrestled with this idea that you can't complain if you vote. It was it never really made sense to me. And then especially in recent years, as I've uh, been rethinking my political philosophy, it just uh, got increasingly strange where it's like, and, and this is sort of what I say in the essay, I say, why should my license to complain be predicated on my complicity with the system I'm complaining about? And I think you put it right when you said, like, we didn't ask for this. And, and it's sort of this idea of, if you're participating in a, a voluntary organization where there's a membership and, and you vote, then I think that's different. And it makes sense that, okay, um, there's a voting process and you're kind of expected to fulfill your duty as a member. But with the nature of the governmental system is that it's coercive. It's being imposed on us regardless of whether we've asked for it. And so I don't think it's fair under that kind of a system to say, oh, well, you can't complain because you didn't vote. It's like, well, I, I think I should be able to complain regardless of whether I participate in this system that you're imposing on me. And so it, it just has never really made sense to me. And uh, with this essay, I was really able to uh, put those thoughts together and articulate them. That's that's perfect. And in your section, and you talk about explaining low voter turnout. Yeah. And I find this interesting because even in in America, I, I, and I, I'm, I may be off a little bit on the percentage, but I believe that at least half of the people in this country did not participate in the last election. Right. So what what do you think drives the the low vote, voter turnout? Because I know they're not all anarchists, mm-hmm. you know, so what do you think drives that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the data that I reference um, in Canada is about 66% uh, of eligible voters uh, showed up to the polls in the most recent election, and that's been trending down. Uh, for a few decades. I think there's sort of four reasons that I outline in the article. Uh, the first is just everyone kind of knows that your vote is statistically insignificant. Like it, it's sort of this unspoken uh, rule that realistically your vote in the ballot box makes zero difference on the outcome. And I, I think that's worth acknowledging. And it sort of gets into this idea of uh, uh, public choice theory uh, where they talk about Um, there's different concepts, but essentially it's this idea of a rational voter is going to look at uh, the pros and cons, the benefits and the drawbacks and say, well, realistically, the benefits of me showing up is negligible because I know I'm not really going to make a difference. So I think that whole statistically insignificant piece uh, is a big reason why people are like, honestly, I can't be bothered because I know it's not going to make a difference anyways. Um, I think the second reason 
is that most writings are predetermined. So in the States, it's a bit of a different system. In Canada, we have writings uh, which have uh, 70 or 80,000 people, I think, each, and then each writing uh, elects one representative, and then there's roughly 300 representatives that go to Parliament and, and vote and make decisions. Uh, a lot of the writings in Canada are effectively strongholds for one of the main parties. So uh, there's a strong urban-rural divide, so rural writings tend to be more conservative, uh, urban writings tend to be more liberal or, or NDP or left-wing, uh, and people kind of know. It's like, I'm in a liberal writing. This writing has voted liberal for the last 20 years. Realistically, that's not going to change. And so a lot of people come up with this defeatist attitude where it's like, honestly, like I know that my writing's always been conservative. It's going to continue to be conservative. And so I think that's another reason where it's like, well, even if I am a strong liberal or even if I do have uh, differences, it's, it's not really going to make a difference. Coming back to this statistically insignificant piece, because the writings are predetermined, there's a few swing writings that kind of determine the election uh, every four years or whenever it is. Um, but again, people are just like, realistically, uh, it's not going to make a difference. So those are the first two reasons. Um, the third reason is this idea of the illusion of choice. So people talk about, oh, you know, we have to get our candidate in because they're going to do this thing and the other candidate's going to do something different. And I think if you just take, step, take a step back and, and look at the whole system, the reality is the candidates that are running are really pretty similar. Uh, and I say down here from the bottom right of the political compass, um, sort of looking as, as a libertarian, as someone who uh, would want significant changes from the status quo, the reality is liberal, conservative, NDP, green, most of these candidates and most of these parties shy away from bold reforms. They don't want to rock the boat. They want to stick with the status quo. And so they make it a big deal and they say, oh, look at how different we are. Look at how bad that other party is. But realistically, when it comes down to it, their policies are very similar. Uh, they aren't really trying to change a lot of things. And so I think there's this illusion of choice where it's like we're presented with this idea that it's really important because uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of changes depending on which party gets in. But realistically, a lot of the parties are very similar. And so it doesn't really matter whether the liberals or the conservatives win because realistically, they're going to implement most of the same policies. They're both going to be corrupt. Uh, and there's going to be not really much of a difference uh, regardless of which party wins. So that's the third reason. And then the last reason is I talk about this idea of the fallacy of representation. Uh, and so we're taught in civics class that, well, um, we vote for candidates and then they represent us. And I, I go into a little bit more depth uh, on this one in the essay, but essentially it's this idea that realistically our candidates don't really do a good job of, of representing us. And I think people know that and people realize that, you know, my candidate that is sitting in parliament supposedly voting on my behalf doesn't really share my views. Um, they aren't really properly representing me. And so I think this is why people don't vote. It's not because they have libertarian convictions per se, but it's that they realize their vote is statistically insignificant. The writing's probably predetermined. Choice is an illusion anyways. And their candidate, whoever does get elected, isn't really going to represent them at the end of the day, no matter what. And so I think that really disillusions a lot of people. And it explains why Voter turnout is honestly quite low. You know, I just something just occurred to me. Maybe instead of as anarchists, we should stop focusing on the people who are engaging with the state or actively voting. Maybe we should start focusing on those people that are not voting hmm. and show them a, a different way that they don't have to worry about that. Because like I said, if, if there's 50 percent of the people in America did not show up to vote, like I said, that that may be off a little bit one way or the other. Yeah. But we're halfway there. 
So maybe let's just uh, talk to those folks. Let's talk to those folks that are just are disillusioned with it anyway. Mm-hmm. And we can start talking to them and maybe we could maybe grow our movement a little bit, <laughs> you know, a little more than just trying to focus on the, the, the status that are, are hell bent on focusing on or, or getting their guy elected. Mm-hmm. Because if you got people out there that are not voting anyway, let's talk to those guys. Yeah, we've already got a we've already got a leg up now. I mean, we can talk to them about a, an individual, voluntary society, mm-hmm. and that might be more appealing to them than having to worry about if some guy's going to be able to represent three hundred million people. Yeah, which is insane when you think about it. I mean, how in the world do you think one guy can represent all these people? We're <laughs> there's not we're not that we're not the same. For sure. And that's why I'm a big fan of individualism anyway. Yeah, I think uh, I talk a lot about uh, the political apathetic. And that's sort of how I would categorize these people who don't vote or are kind of disillusioned with the system. Uh, And one of the things as I was writing this essay that I thought about is there really are a lot of those people out there. There's a lot of people who are like, well, you know, it's the lesser of two evils. And I don't really follow politics closely. And, you know, I kind of have some ideas. But uh, there's a lot of people who just have sort of stepped back and and thrown up their hands and say, well, well, what's the point? And I absolutely agree. In in a lot of ways, those are people who we need to be reaching out to and saying, hey, there there is a better way. Uh, I think people kind of tend to fall into two camps that I've noticed is that on the one hand, there's people who uh, are really, really strongly in favor of their politician or their, their policies or their candidates or whatever. And because of that, they argue really hard in favor of them. And there's a bunch of emotional rhetoric that goes around. And it's not really helpful most of the time. Uh, but then on the other hand, there's people who just kind of withdraw and they say, oh, well, I'm not interested in arguing or debating. And so they just sort of avoid the topic altogether. And because of that, uh, they never really take the steps to learn or, or to, to think through some of the, the philosophies that are guiding uh, these, these principles and whatnot. And so what I am trying to cultivate with uh, my blog articles, for example, and with discussions is relearning and, and teaching people how to have healthy dialogues about difficult topics. Because I think there's too much emotional rhetoric on the one hand, and there's too much uh, acquiescence and uh, sort of just avoidance on the other hand. And I think if we can come to these people who are maybe apathetic about politics and say, hey, I'm not going to try to sell you a, a brand of Republican or, or Democrat principles or whatever. I just want to have a conversation with you about the philosophies and the principles that are driving the system and talk about solutions and talk about, is there a better way to go about this? Is, are there maybe um, better ways? And, and so I always like to bring the conversation to a different level. So people say, well, should the government do uh, option A or option B? And then my question is always, well, why should the government have that choice in the first place? Why not make these decisions localized? Why not step back and ask, why do we have a system where it's a one size fits all option? And the only question is, which option do we choose? I think if we can go to these people who are maybe disengaged, who aren't all that interested in the politics, who don't feel like their voice matters or that uh, they have a meaningful choice or, or that the system is really working to help them, is we can go and say, hey, what if we rethought some of the, the things that are driving the system. And I think that's a conversation that uh, these sorts of people would be much more open to and interested in. And I absolutely agree. That would be a great way uh, to start having a dialogue and to start uh, reaching out to people and inspiring them with a new vision that moves beyond the emotional rhetoric and the destructive rhetoric of politics. I don't know why this never occurred to me before. 
And I'm not saying that it hasn't occurred to other folks because I'm sure it has, but it makes sense because I spend so much time online or on social media talking to people that are on the left or the right, one, one or the other. I spend more time talking to the right because that's where I came from. But they are doubling down. They are so dug in that you're not going to change their mind. And I think this is the way. I think this is what we had to start doing. We, don't, we, we should start reaching out to those people who, like you said, are apathetic, but do kind of want to have a voice in their life. And they can have that voice individually. And I also think it's important to talk to each of them on an individual basis. It's very difficult to talk to a group of people with different ideals and get them to understand where we're coming from as anarchists or voluntarists, whichever term you like to use. Because when you get a person one-on-one and you and they are aware of the, the uh, corruption in the, of the state, and they don't participate, they don't engage with it, but we can show them a way. Here we go. Let's, let's, let's push for a voluntary society. We're halfway there, man. In America, like I said, 50%. I feel like we got, a, we got some momentum now if we can just start talking to those people and quit worrying about the people that are going to run to the polls every two to four years and vote for their guy that's got a special letter by their name. They're dug in. They are, they're gone. <laughs> so let's focus on the people that have, might have an open mind of what we're talking about. Yeah, and I like uh, even that approach is informed by individualism. Uh, and I like what you said about let's talk to people one-on-one, not talking to them as, as groups. The thing about politics is I really see it as a form of tribalism where uh, people try to say, well, you're in this group and you're in this group and you're in this group. And then you try to pander to different groups and then different groups lobby and, th- and different groups petition and it's groups, 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 groups. And the problem is uh, you try to have a conversation with someone, but it's just a conversation with their group. And it's one group ideology versus the other group ideology. And I think one of the, the beautiful things about libertarian philosophy is that we can go to the individual and say, I value you as an individual, not just as a member of your group. And I want to have a conversation with you personally. And I think people are going to be so much more receptive to that. And it'll be refreshing because it's like, oh, like you're not just trying to lump me in with some group so that you can uh, stereotype me. You're actually trying to see what I as an individual care about and what I as an individual uh, think is important. And I think even the fact that we approach it in that way is a testament to our ultimate goals and values of individualism and uh, and individual liberty. Right. And I've said this more than once. Once you start getting people or viewing people as a collective, the individual completely disappears. Mm-hmm. And even back when I was uh, an active voter back in my neocon days, I still had a, a sense of individualism. I didn't understand how to get there. And I was still trying to use the state to get there, which is looking back was, is ridiculous. It's, that's not going to happen, but <laughs> I still always, I don't know just my upbringing, but I always understood that the individual, I mean, each individual is special in their own way. And once you lump them all together and start using them as a collective, you've lost that person's uniqueness. And that's why we need to get back to one-on-one conversations with people. Yeah, there's a a great series that the Foundation of Economic Education puts out called Out of Frame. 
Uh, it's written by Sean Malone. And I really like the one uh, where he talks about Avatar and he talks about this individualism versus collectivism and what it means for uh, to live out individualism uh, culturally and, and how we can embrace that and how we can refuse to reduce people to their group identity, uh, but actually value them as individuals. And that sort of reminds me of the whole fallacy of representation that I talked about in my essay. It's sort of this idea that the way the democratic system works is it takes a bunch of diverse individuals and tries to sort of amalgamate them together into this one coherent uh, political representative and then, so, and then says, okay, this one person represents these 50,000 people or these million people or whatever. And, and you try to amalgamate all that. But I think that there's, there's inherent dangers there. And uh, I'll, I'll read a, a quick quote from the essay that I think sort of sums up what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, the point is that writings are so large and diverse that it's simply impossible for one person to embody any meaningful representation of the populace. There's just too many people, too many divergent and opposing voices that you just can't amalgamate them with any homogeneity. So what ends up happening is that a complete representation is sacrificed for a coherent one. The plurality of disparate voices in the community is disregarded in favor of a singular partisan voice that really only represents a small subset of the writing. The guy who wins the local popularity contest becomes the monolithic mouthpiece of what is in reality a tremendously diverse constituency. And so I, I think what I'm trying to get at in that paragraph is this idea that when we elect political representat representatives, uh, we whitewash uh, the diversity of these communities. And there's this sort of assumption that's driving the system that people who live in the same geographic area will have roughly the same views and therefore one person can represent them. But in reality, people have tremendously different views on a whole set of topics. And I think it's really, it makes no sense to say, well, one person can represent everyone from this writing or everyone from this uh, locality. And then they're the person who goes to parliament and speaks on their behalf, supposedly. I think that whole principle of democracy is founded on this tribalistic, collectivist uh, idea that people, first and foremost, belong to a group, and that therefore, the representative can speak on behalf of the group. And, and I think, so, so this whole principle of democracy is counter to individualism. Individualism is about valuing diversity, valuing the fact that uh, individuals are unique and that there's outliers and that they're important to be recognized and to be uh, sort of included in the discussion. And the very nature of democracy, I think, uh, actually works against that. Uh, and I mean, Ayn Rand, for example, talked about the smallest minority on earth is the individual. Uh, you can't claim to be a defender of minorities if you don't defend individual rights. And I think she got it exactly right the fact is that democracy is mob rule. It is the tyranny of the majority over the minority and over the individuals. And as long as that uh, is the predominant uh, political system, then we will fall into the trap of collectivism. And we will have this fallacy of representation going on where one person purports to stand for the group when in reality, that's just unfounded. There is no meaningful representation there because you just can't represent uh, a constituency that's so diverse and so large. Well, and to your point, and I've got your article here in front of me, and you, you said this, and there's a percentage, you said in the last election, roughly 16% of Canadians voted for the party that now rules the country. Yeah. 
granted as a minority they need ndp and i'm not familiar with ndp means but it's indeed ndp support to pass laws but they that still only bumps it up to 24 percent. yes that is less than a quarter yeah that's insane that number right there should be alarming to anybody. Yeah. That few people have that much power over so many people. Yeah, I can explain those numbers a little bit. So uh, first, keep in mind, this is 16% of all Canadians. So I'm not just talking about eligible voters, but I'm talking about out of the 37 million Canadians. Uh, NDP is essentially uh, a little bit further left than liberal. So think Bernie Sanders, AOC, uh, that sort of party. And so the way the Canadian uh, system works very briefly is that uh, there are roughly 300 ridings. Each riding gets one representative that goes to Parliament. In order to pass laws in Parliament, you need a majority of the representatives, a majority of those 300 representatives, uh, to pass laws. The, the Liberals currently have uh, a minority, so they have something like 40% of the representatives in Parliament. Uh, but then if the NDP supports their bill, then the NDP and Liberals combined have enough representatives that they make up over 50% of Parliament. And so they can pass laws and govern the country. But this is where I try to step back and I say, but if you look at like all Canadians, not just eligible voters, but the, all 37 million Canadians, 24%, that's a, that's a quarter. And, and then the other thing I point out is the Conservatives won the popular vote in the last election, which is to say, overall, there were more people who voted for Conservatives uh, than for Liberals or NDP. And... So if we just, like, for example, if, if the whole country was one riding and only had one representative, the conservatives would have one. It's just the nature of the riding system. And uh, there's all sorts of things that go on with that in, in Canadian politics. There's been talks about electoral reform. and But all, all that to say, the point is, I think these statistics make a mockery of the idea that the government actually represents the people. I think everybody knows the reality is they represent a small subset of the people, a very partisan subset. And it just, to me, it just totally destroys the legitimacy of this idea that, uh, that they're representative in any meaningful sense. That's interesting because in, in, here in America, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote over Trump. Right. But Trump won the electoral vote. And there's been a push by the left to do away with the electoral college. Right. Now, to do that, they would have to go in and change the United States Constitution. Yeah. You can't just vote on it. I mean, you'd have to go through an Article 5 to change the United States Constitution. That will never happen. That's dead on arrival, I promise you. Yeah. So the way it, it looks here is like you've got large cities that are more liberal than what you're, what's going to be conservative. So they have more votes. But in the way the United States election process is set up, and people don't really understand this, that each state, each all 50 states have their own presidential election. They are each allotted a certain amount of electoral votes, depending on, I guess, population. Mm -hmm. Hey folks, Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page. And you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project 
and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. And so let's I move on just a little bit. So let's get to the point, the section where you say, so why should I vote? I love this because you said, and others will say that by not voting, I'm disrespecting society or the military, or that I'm being ungrateful for the suffrage rights that others have fought for on my behalf. I suppose they don't share my conviction that it's disrespectful to ask politicians to rule over one's neighbors. And what's interesting about that is this phrase drives me crazy. I have the right to vote. You've been given the right from the government to vote for more government. Do you not understand how acidine that sounds? The government is giving you a right to vote for them? No, that is that doesn't make any logical sense to me that the government is giving you a right to select them. Yeah. What I really wanted, wanted to get at with this section is uh, there's, there's this argument that you're, you're not being respectful or you're not acknowledging uh, these, these rights that people have won for you. Like, uh, and, and this is something I was raised in. This is sort of Im- embedded in our culture, this idea that, well, you have the right to vote. And like, that's really important. And people have fought and died for this right. Uh, and it's, it's something that we're all sort of taught at a young age that voting is really important because people have bled and died for these freedoms. And like the fact that you get to live in a democracy is so special and there are places where you don't have the right to vote. So uh, who are you to sort of disparage um, these rights that have been given to you? And and it sounds really good. It sounds like, oh my goodness, yes, people have died for this. Like uh, people have fought for this. People have tried to uh, move society forward. And we finally got to this point where I have the right to vote. I, I have the right to have a one in a million say in who my rulers are and what policies they impose. And therefore I should be so grateful. And I think, again, if you just step back and think about it, like, first of all, we can have a conversation about rights. And it's really important to distinguish between positive rights and negative rights. Uh, so very briefly, positive rights are rights that, uh, rights have corresponding duties. Uh, so if you have a right, it means someone else has a responsibility. So a positive right is anything where the corresponding responsibility is is active. So uh, the right to food or the right to healthcare or the right to housing uh, would be a positive right. Somebody else has to go out of their way to provide you with that thing. Uh, a right is essentially an entitlement. You're entitled to food. You're entitled to healthcare. You're entitled to housing. And if other people don't give it to you, then they're violating your rights. To me, that conception of, of rights doesn't make sense. And I think the right to vote is kind of uh, in that category. Negative rights are simply rights where the duty on others is that they have to not do something. So for example, the right to free speech just means that others can't interfere with my speech. They don't have to do anything for me. They just have to not interfere with me. The right to religious liberty, the right to uh, property, all of these things are, are negative rights. And so when people talk about the right to vote, it is a little bit confusing because it's it's a, a right that only exists in the context of the state. It's a right that's sort of created by the state and it, it's using this crafty language of rights. And so we think about rights as if it's a good thing. It's like, I want to have more rights because that gives me more power or influence or more of a say in whatever. But if you think about what the right to vote actually entails, it really is a right to have a small say, usually a negligible say, in how you are ruled and in the policies 
that you are forced to comply with. And if your vote is outnumbered, well, tough luck, we're still going to oppress you and rule over you and violate your consent and, and use coercion, which is the nature of government. And so to me, <laughs> um, it's, it's a misnomer to call it a right. It's a right insofar as the government creates it. But realistically, uh, it, in the realm of political philosophy uh, and libertarian political philosophy, the idea of the non-aggression principle, uh, the right to vote just doesn't make any sense. And this is why I say, I suppose they don't share my conviction that it's disrespectful to ask politicians to rule over one's neighbors. So people are saying, well, um, you should respect those who have fought for suffrage rights. And I'm saying, I think the entire concept of suffrage in the sense of I get to choose a master to rule over my neighbors. I have a problem with that. I, I have a problem with this idea that the majority or however the constitution defines it, some group should get to rule over others and has the right to rule over others. It's like, well, I actually disagree with that on a fundamental level. And so I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it makes sense to talk about that as a right. And I don't think that it is actually respectful. I, I think if we really are interested in respecting people, uh, then we can start by not ruling over them and not asking politicians to rule over them, which is what voting is. That's perfect. Now, I want to get to my favorite part of the article, this section, why you can't complain. And this is something that has been frustrating me right now during this election cycle, because there are a lot of anarchists out there, self-proclaiming anarchists, pushing for the libertarian ticket in, in the presidential election. And I always hear this term, and I don't like this term either, defensive voting. I understand what they're saying. I understand the argument behind it. Right. But you're still legitimizing the state. Yeah. And you say this in your article, you say very simply, when you vote, you are implicitly endorsing the democratic process. By participating in the system, you are legitimizing the idea that it is good and just for the, the elected officials to run the government and impose laws as they see fit within the bounds of the Constitution, which is ironic because they don't even, I don't know how they are in Canada, but they don't even regard the Constitution as something that exists here anymore. Donald Trump, in his uh, after he was nominated, I, and I've said this more than once on this podcast, he had Mike Pence sitting right next to him, and he was on Fox News, and he said, the Constitution is not always relevant. And Mike Pence did not bat an eye, man. And this is when I started to, but when he was nominated, that's when I started to kind of, my idea started to change. I started seeking out a third party. But the whole idea that the Republicans here are supposed to be about the Constitution, the guy they just nominated said it's not always relevant. But is he wrong? Because they don't use it. They don't abide by it. The voters that are, that are electing or electing these folks don't care if they follow the Constitution. And when you point out that their guy is not following the Constitution, they will go to the ends of the earth to try and prove me wrong. And I could show him right there in the Constitution where he's violating it. And it doesn't matter. He's got a special letter by his name. Yeah. And I, I think this is another reason why uh, many Americans are so disillusioned with politics. It's like it, it's, it's the elephant in the room that they haven't been following the Constitution for a while. And some people are willing to say it. I wish more people were willing to say it. and. Yeah, it's, it's like, and again, it just completely undermines the legitimacy of government. It's like, okay, you say that these are your guiding rules, but then your actions are just totally not aligned with that. There's a lack of integrity there. 
And that sort of gets into, there's this debate between uh, the idea of a living constitution versus originalism. And my point in, in that debate would essentially be, laws are called statutes. The root word of statute is essentially a word that means fixed. It's the same root as stay or stationary or statue um, or state. Uh, it, it's this idea of fixed. So if the constitution is not a fixed uh, statute, then you really uh, are undermining the principle of law itself. And I, I think that it's it's sad to see uh, just how much the constitution is being completely ignored in the States. Well, I mean, you can go back to the founding of this country. The very first president, George Washington, mm-hmm. violated his own oath to the constitution. Hmm. And it has progressively gotten worse with every election. So, I mean, just just when, when we get off here, go look up Whiskey Rebellion. Mm. Yep. Read about Whiskey Rebellion. It's a complete violation of the United States Constitution. And that was something that George or George Washington, not George W. Bush, he violated the Constitution every day. But <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So I love the fact that when, when you say you can't complain if you're voting, you can't. Stop telling me that. I can't complain. Yeah, and, and here I really like to uh, draw the analogy to slavery, and this is what Larkin Rose does in uh, his video that I linked in my article. So if you're a slave and you have the, the conviction that slavery is immoral and that you deserve to be free, you don't go ask your master, like, hey, can you be a little bit nicer to me? <laughs> because if, if you go ask your master, can you be nicer to me? There's an implication there. And the implication is that it's the master's choice. And this is what Larkin Rose says. Asking implies that it's their choice. To go to your master and ask them to change their policies or to be a little bit nicer or whatever implies that it's their choice to make, that they can decide to or they can decide not to if they want to be nicer, if they want to have higher taxes or lower taxes. The fact that you participate in the system legitimizes this idea that it's up to them in the first place. Whereas as a slave, what you ought to do is you ought to to go and say, no, what you're doing is wrong. And I demand that you stop ruling over me. I demand that you stop violating consent. And so this gets into this idea of principles versus pragmatism. A lot of uh, voluntarists will say, well, yes, we have our principles, but we need to be pragmatic. We need to, uh, you know, vote defensively as you were talking about and and all these things. And here's the thing I, I say, in the long run, I think the most pragmatic approach is to be principled. Right. I think in the long run, if you are willing to compromise on your principles again and again and again for the sake of pragmatism, it's not going to work. I I saw this really brilliant quote uh, a few months ago. Incrementalism in theory is perpetuity in practice. Realistically, you aren't making a difference by constantly defensive voting, defensive voting, defensive voting, because you're just compromising your principles. And when you compromise your principles, you water them down, they lose their potency, and they lose the impact that it ought to have. And this is where I draw a lot of inspiration from the abolitionist movement. The abolitionists were uncompromising. They said, we aren't just fighting for slaves to be treated a little bit nicer. We are fighting for slavery to be abolished, because slavery is inherently immoral and anything less than total abolition is not sufficient. And I think as voluntarists, we need to be doing the exact same thing and and saying, look, if we are constantly willing to settle for defensive voting or whatever, I say, but you're not living up to your principles. You're not living at your principles consistently. 
and the potency of the movement is going to be compromised and the integrity of the movement is going to be compromised if we don't live according to our principles. And so this is where I say, look, I understand the pragmatic uh, draw. I understand that it's alluring to say, well, if I just vote defensively and realistically in the long run, uh, being principled is the way to go. This, this is the way of Jesus, in my opinion. Jesus had a lot of temptations to be pragmatic. You know, he could have right. uh, gone on a military conquest and overthrown the Romans. And in the short run, that would have uh, sort of helped a lot of people and, and uh, alleviated a lot of suffering. But Christ said, no, I am going to be ruthlessly principled, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. And I think this is what God calls us to. We need to be dedicated to our principles because of integrity. And it is that very integrity that in the long run will be held up as a model and will be the reason that this movement carries the force that I believe it will one day carry. Well, the the idea of, and that's perfect. I love that. I've been sitting here nodding my head in approval the whole time you're <laughs> talking and, and wanted to shout amen the whole time. But the nice. the idea of defensive voting, I absolutely reject. And I've been in debates with other voluntarists or anarchists that are using that that argument, they will bring up Lysander Spooner by mm -hmm. using, because he said that it's okay for defensive voting. I don't mm -hmm. agree with Lysander Spooner. I agree with Lysander Spooner on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. but on that, I do not. And I understand that he did a lot of good things for the anarchist movement. Mm -hmm. But I do not agree with him on that, and I, I never will. And so let's close with this. The last part of your article, you say, we need to stop pretending. Yeah. You say, for whatever reason, maybe the system has always frust frustrated you, mm -hmm. but you've been told all your life that the best way to voice your frustration is by voting. Well, I, for one, am not convinced that a broken system will fix itself. And I'm, I'm going to stop right there because the state has no interest in fixing itself. We, we, we need to understand that off the bat, the state has no interest in policing itself whatsoever. And you said many Canadians tried voting for electoral reform in 2015, but all they got was one more broken political promise. So instead of voting our way out of this mess, I'd like to propose a different path. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, that, that's exactly it. And, and here's what I say. I want you to consider what message you're sending when you show up at the polls. Do you really want to communicate your approval? Do you really want to legitimize this process and implicitly support all these deceitful politicians you claim to hate? What if the best way to let them know you disapprove is just to not vote? What if we stopped giving legitimacy to this process that we all agree is defective, broken, and unjust? What if we could push voter turnout lower and lower and lower until people finally woke up and realized that this whole idea of representative democracy is a joke? And you see, the problem is that we keep pretending to believe what we know to be false. Uh, we pretend that our individual voice matters and that we have a meaningful choice. We pretend that our politicians can accurately represent us. And we pretend that this time will be different, but I think it's time to stop pretending and finally acknowledge the truth. Your voice doesn't matter. It never has. And I think you already know that. Now you just need to start acting like it. Right. And I honestly believe this. If we stop putting them in office and we stop supporting them and stop legitimizing the state, they will fall under their own weight. And there's a quote, and I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a quote that says something similar to that. And I'm not even going to try to quote it because I'll, I'll butcher it. But if you just stop participating in it, they have to go away because once you're not participating, they lose all their power. Mm -hmm. Once you are, as long as you're involved with that, 
you're still giving them power. Mm -hmm. And we've got to get away from that. And I think the best way to start that is to stop voting for them. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm hoping as a younger generation, you said you're 25. Yeah. I'm 45. So I'm hoping people in your age group are starting to wake up to this and they will stop participating in it. Right. And stop buying into this notion that the state is legitimate because it's not. Yeah. A broken system isn't going to fix itself. And continuing to perpetuate the system that has consistently let us down is, is not the way to move forward. Well, man, this was fun. I really enjoyed this article. And I, I'm, I, I'm hoping that people that are kind of on the fence about it will go read this and it'll kind of push them over the edge. And why don't you tell us, uh, tell the listeners where they can find you and find you because you have articles, other articles out there that I want to have you back on the show to talk about as well. But in the meantime, they can go find you at the Prudent Navigator. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, I have a, a blog. It's pretty small, but just a, a collection of my ideas on uh, philosophy, psychology, theology, uh, and a few other things. So that's the prudentnavigator.wordpress.com. And then I also have a Facebook page called The Prudent Navigator. Oh, no. I did not know about the Facebook page. I'll check that out when we get done here. Yeah. Okay, cool, man. I'm going to have you back on. This was a fun conversation. Excellent. Excellent. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. And I always love uh, having discussions about ideas and uh, being able to talk about these things. Awesome. All right, buddy. I'm going to let you go and then uh, let you get back to your day. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.